Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Unexpected Points. We're going to go through the entire Week 11 slate, point out what we may or may not be seeing correctly from the final scores that we have in here. There's going to be some MVP talk. There's going to be some talk about whether the Chiefs are back to being strong contenders or not. There's going to be a lot going on here. Uh, welcome, and here, let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Uh, we are back for another edition of the the Tuesday show. It's my favorite one here. I know a lot of people probably get their podcast, the wrap-ups. Now the, the popular thing is the night of Sunday night. After the Sunday night football game, we have that with our own podcast here. Uh, George and Eric Eager at the PFF Forecast, they do that. The Athletic Football Show does that. The... Um, at the NFL, their their show there does that. I like to take a little more time, you know, let it marinate a little bit here. And to quickly go through a little bit of some process-related stuff, just to make sure everyone knows exactly what I'm doing here, especially for any of those people who may be new listening to this one uh, or watching it on YouTube here. So my process is I crunch a, a ton of numbers for, for this. The... PFF numbers I have, of course, for for every game, whether it's going through all the different grading and things like that, focused especially on the quarterback, of course. And then I also have the EPA and the efficiency numbers. And then we go down even further. We look at pressures. We look at blitzes. We look at um, late down versus early down, performance, pressured versus not performance for quarterbacks, drops turn of worthy plays, big time throws, all that sort of stuff. So I basically have all those numbers that crunch and then I'm able to bring them up game by game and compare everything that goes on here. And that's kind of scroll through there. So some people are also going to say, well, you're going to watch the games? Like, okay, so obviously I'm not watching all the games before I'm coming to you on, on Tuesday here. I'm going to, I'm, you know, caught red handed, not watching all these games. What I do do though, what we do have here at PFF, which is a unique tool is we're able to dig in and just click on any set, any statistical category and bring up all those different plays. So what I will focus on more than anything, when I'm looking at the plays is I'm going to look at the interceptions and the turnover worthy plays, see how those align, whether or not those are aligned or not. So how many turnover-worthy plays and how egregious they were that did not end up being interceptions and vice versa, how many interceptions they had that were not turnover-worthy plays and kind of how egregious those plays were to get an idea, some context on how much we should penalize teams for this. Number two, I'm going to look at drops because, again, drops are a binary designation. So off, sometimes these drops, there's a you know a 50-yard bomb that's dropped that should have been an easy catch that would have been a huge touchdown. Sometimes the drops are when a quarterback is rifling the ball 100 miles an hour at a running back coming out of the backfield on third and 12, and it would have been a four-yard pickup even if the running back caught it in the first place. So in other words, it doesn't really matter. So I like to take that into context. And I also like to pull in to... A lot of the bigger plays just to get an idea of what sort of high level plays that we're seeing from a particular quarterback. Now, a lot of times here we don't see any big time throws, so I'm not able to bring up anything for these quarterbacks, but I generally like to do that to get an idea of, of what's going on, to give context around some of the larger outlier plays that can really affect 
the EPA per plane numbers. So that's my process. And all that leads to, of course, the adjusted scores that we're going to talk about here, that I can compare these to every single game. The actual scores, the adjusted scores are going to weigh more heavily on success rate or whether or not how, what percentage of plays are successful, since that is a more stable metric than the outliers of extreme good and extreme bad plays for an offense. And then I'm also going to make adjustments based upon turnover-worthy plays that don't end up interceptions, interceptions that weren't turnover-worthy plays, drops, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's start first. Actually, you know, before I get into anything, let me just say real quickly, uh, we have a promo going at PFF. So just so you know about this right up at the top, Cyber 40, 40% off, 40% off any sub right now. Cyber 40, support the pod, support everyone here, and go ahead and use that promo code. That's a big savings for everyone. All right, let's get into first Monday Night Football. We'll go a little bit backwards here before dipping around into the more important games. So we we saw the game, not that interesting. There was not a miraculous fourth quarter comeback and back and forth like we saw in Sunday Night Football that I'll talk about. But we have the Giants at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 11.5-point favorite this close for the Bucs. What was interesting about that is I saw some appetite out there for the Giants when they were 11-point underdogs or 10.5, and and that just kept on moving, which showed that the smart money, which the sharp money, which seems like it was correct, was going on to Tampa Bay there. Final score, 32-10. My adjusted score is only 24-10, so a little bit more narrow than it is there. And um, we're going to go through the same process that I've gone through before with the headline and alternative headline. So the headline that you're hearing out there, the narrative that you're hearing out there versus what I'm taking away from this game. But I'm going to throw in a new thing here, and that is the number of the game for every single game. I'm going to pick out one number I want to talk about and why it's significant in the context of this game and looking at one or two or both of these teams going forward. So the headline here is, you know, Bucks cruise to victory. The alternative headline here. For me, and maybe this is the most important from a league-wide perspective, but is Brady is the 2021 MVP. He kind of has this locked up at this point. If you look at the odds now on betting sites, Brady is plus 300. He's leading the crew, uh, which puts him at about a 25% implied probability to win the award. There are other contenders, and I think it's a function of what we're seeing generally with the spread out market here. I mean, you have Stafford, Rodgers, and Deck Prescott all at plus 1,000, which gives them about a 9% probability. You have Kyler Murray at 1,200, which gives them about a 7-8% uh, probability. Same with Justin Herbert and Patrick Mahomes. And then as you get further down, we have Lamar Jackson, we have Jonathan Taylor. We'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, Malarkey um, is also after that. What's weird is Josh Allen is second, at plus 600. So the only, I, I could never understand why he was even leading the MVP race before this. Not that he's been particularly poor this year, but he wasn't good enough. And now that the Bills are not even leading their own division, I think this must be a function of the fact that these books took a lot of money on Josh Allen earlier this year and are now just trying to dissuade people from from taking more liability on Josh Allen at this point. That's the only thing I can I can point to because it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, that he was first in those MVP odds before, and now he's still second right now after what we have seen. But anyway, so Brady's in a dominant position where he is, you know, almost 3x the implied probability of any of the other real contenders right now for the award. 
And what's interesting here, though, when you go into his numbers, and this is going to be, I'm not going to talk too much about the game here because the game was the game. We saw it. Um, as you talk more about on a larger scale level, looking at the quarterback group this year, there's this weird thing going on with the divergence between the PFF grading. So the grading that we're doing on a per play basis, we're rating every single, you know, drop back on a negative two to positive two basis on a play by play basis, which all feeds up into our zero through hundred grades that we have. Uh, Brady had an 82.2 grade in this game, which is a strong grade. He continues to be way out ahead when it comes to his grading on the season as far ahead of everyone else. Uh, Kyler's close, though. And his EPA, though, in this game, again, was only okay at 0.17 EPA per play. To give you an idea of where that is on a percentile basis, it's like a 65th-ish sort of percentile type of performance. So again, he's, he's, you know, performing in the 90th percentile and higher in grading and then 60 something in EPA. If you look at his year long numbers, he's first in grading, as I mentioned, ahead of everyone, but he's only eighth in EPA per play, which is efficient. My favorite efficiency number expected points added per play, which measures the actual value gained on a play per play basis. Any play the quarterback is involved in, whether throwing or running the ball, whether he's running the ball. And, uh, gives you an accurate point-based measure on that to compare players. So he's only eighth. And which is what's interesting about this is we're seeing this strange dynamic where you have to weigh those two things against each other. I don't think I would go straight by grading. I don't go straight by EPA per play. I come out with a weekly quarterback ranking article where I blend those two measures together to come up with quarterback rankings. Brady's been number one the last few weeks. I think he'll continue to be number one despite the fact that he's eighth in EPA per play. And on the flip side, there are some dramatic differences this year between the top players in efficiency and where their PFF grades are. This year, Matthew Stafford is number one in efficiency by EPA per play. Aaron Rodgers is number two. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is number three. Their PFF grades are 16th, 13th, and 23rd, respectively, those three guys. Nowhere close to top three where they are in their grading. And if we look at the two previous years, I can bring up really quickly for 2019 and for 2020, only one player who had a top five EPA per play was not also in the top five for their PFF grading. So there was a much stronger link between those two measures. And that was Matthew Stafford in a shortened 2019. He, where he only played half the season. He was uh, in the top five in EPA per play, but he was only ninth. And grading. So it'll be interesting to see where those numbers go, which direction these guys go. And I think most people are not going to be believing in Jimmy Garoppolo as the third most efficient quarterback in the NFL, and he'll end up following down. But then they probably do believe in Stafford and Rodgers much more. So maybe their grading will come closer to them. But it's something to track going forward. And I think it just shows that there has been some weird-ish sort of plays this season and in this game. Uh, we saw this with the interception that went off of Mike Evans's hands and then went up in the air. Patrick Mahomes has had a ton of interceptions on some weird plays. There's been a lot of weird plays, and there hasn't been the high-level type of quarterback play, at least when we extend out to three, four, five deep that we've seen in previous years, where Patrick Mahomes is always right up there at the top. Uh, even he has struggled this season. So it's been a little bit more of a free-for-all up near the top as far as that's concerned and more difficult for us to all agree upon who has been the best quarterback in the NFL this year. And for the number of the game, for this game, 
the number of the game for Bucks and Giants is 18.5. That number is the pass percentage for the Buccaneers in this game over expectation. So if you adjust every play, you decide what's the probability of a pass on this play based upon down, distance, score differential, time remaining, all those different things. They passed it 18, 18.5% higher rate than you would have expected. And just to get into the exact number here, um, their pass percentage was only 65.8%. So it wasn't extremely high, but they were dominating in this game the entire time. And the reason this number is so interesting to me is because the Bucs are pressing their advantage in these situations. Now, Brady only got two touchdowns, and we were hoping for a player prop here of above two and a half, which actually did not end up hitting. But it was a little bit unlucky from the fact that, you know, they were doing what they do so far this season, and that's pressed their advantage. So far this season, if you take any team in the in the NFL, the Bucs are the most pass-happy team in the NFL this year. They're 12% over expectation on average so far this season after only being around 5% last season. They're leaning into that. I think it's going extremely well. They ran it a little bit too much on early downs, especially to start last season before that offense became the thing that it became in the second half after their bye last year. And now they're leaning more and more into that this year, which is going to be to their benefit and help their playoff and Super Bowl chances in the future. All right, let's go to Sunday Night Football now. Pittsburgh Steelers at L.A. Chargers, although this was almost a neutral field game, right? Or a split 50-50 crowd game for this one. The Chargers were six and a half point favorites. The Chargers win 41 to 37. So only by four points, the Steelers uh, cover on this one. My adjusted score is 33-24 Chargers. So you could say it's a little bit of a bad beat that the Chargers did not end up covering this game. We had the back-to-back or nearly back-to-back, blocked punt, which then resulted in Pittsburgh getting the ball near the goal line in the fourth quarter, um, getting a pass interference call, and then scoring on that, which they needed the pass interference call, or else they would would have ran out on fourth down. And then the Justin Herbert interception, where it went off of Cam Hayward's helmet, flew way up in the air, Cam Sutton makes the interception, and then they go ahead and, and, and score on that one. Um, so if it wasn't for those two plays, which were, again, not a turnover-worthy play for Justin Herbert at all, so there's an adjustment for that, that's what boosts the uh, Chargers up in the standing here. So the headline for this game is Chargers fix their offense, and the alternative headline I have is Herbert's down streak, if you want to call it that, uh, was probably noise. Herbert had negative EPA in three out of his last four games going into this, which caused the the TOCs, the uh, Twitter offensive coordinators, to come in and pile on Joe Lombardi. I talked about this last week. The TOCs were all over uh, Lombardi. There became a consensus that Herbert's not being allowed to throw the ball down the field enough and you know, like maybe Joe Lombardi doesn't realize, hey, Justin Herbert has a great arm. No, I think he realizes that, guys. Um, But in this game, we saw Herbert put up a fantastic performance. And in the first half of this game where they were killing, they had not been stopped. They did not punt the ball until the fourth quarter. This leads into my number of the game here. And the number of the game here is 5.9. And that is Justin Herbert's average depth of target in this game. He was extremely successful with this quick passing game. Um, if you look at what the Chargers did, 
to start this game, their offense, how good their offense was here. And I think it's important to take this into context because there weren't that many drives in this game because both teams were playing pretty well. And again, with the short game, it, it was taking a while here. They didn't have that many opportunities to score, but they took advantage of them. So the char- here's the Chargers games to start, drives starting from, from the first one. Touchdown, touchdown, field goal, touchdown, field goal, punt, touchdown. Um, punt, which was a weird one, right, um, that they had the blocked punt. Interception, which was, again, strange. Turnover on downs where they went forward on fourth and inches and a kind of uninspired play call there. I will be a, a TOC. I'll be a Twitter OC, a Twitter offensive coordinator here. And I will say that I wasn't in love with Austin Eckler going straight up the gut as I had mentioned on the last podcast, on fourth down, go ahead and take some chances going outside. You, you don't care if you get stuffed at the line or if you lose two or three yards on this play because it's fourth down. On third down, I care about that. On third down, you try to minimize losing yards as part of the calculus on what you're doing, not just maximizing your chance of conversion. On fourth down, only maximize your chance of conversion, not your... Uh, not minimize the probability of losing yards. And that was kind of a up-the-gut play call that would do the latter, would minimize the probability of losing yards, and who cares about that? But anyway, so turnover and downs on there, and then a touchdown to end. 96th percentile in their success rate, how good they were. Um, If you take all the different games that have happened the last few years, this is a top, top top-notch performance. They passed it at a 72.5 rate, which was 14% over expectation. So again, Twitter OCs out there who want more of this long passing game for the Chargers, guess what? They have a short passing game because they have Austin Eckler. They have a short passing game because they have Keenan Allen. They have a short passing game because they have a quarterback like Justin Herbert who can substitute short passes for runs instead. Uh, That's the reason they're doing it. That's the reason Justin Herbert can be so, so highly successful despite having a low A dot. That offense can be so, so highly successful. Wouldn't you rather have him throwing the ball 73, 74, 75% of the time, even though they were leading for a lot of this game? Have him doing that and then mixing in a bunch of short passes as opposed to passing the ball 60% of the time and then substituting runs for those short passes? I don't want to do that. I, I, I want to let Herbert go. He's, he's the truth. He's a sneaky MVP candidate, I think, at plus 1,200. Um, so, again, Twitter OCs, we gotta, we got we to gotta slow down, slow our roll here on, on this sort of stuff. I mean, the big numbers for Herbert, we'll talk about it again because, again, I think this is like the MVP sort of. He's, he's creeping, creeping back in a little bit to this conversation. 382 passing yards, 90 rushing yards. People are going to love those numbers. Uh, first time that's ever happened where someone has hit those two thresholds in an NFL game. Six scrambles and three design runs is how he put together the 90 rushing yards. I don't know if I like to see a lot of running from him because you don't want to see him get hurt. He seems fairly smart about when to do it, but at you know six five type of guy, six I think six six actually type of guy, we have to we have to be a little bit careful um, in taking a little bit a little too much damage on these runs. Uh, and he also had, you know, four drops in this game, and they were pretty significant drops. These were a lot of them were would have been conversions, not on third down, but they would have been conversions. Uh, often he converted it anyway on a later down. They would have been about ten yards at least a piece. So if you add those four drops back into the mix, 
his completion percentage, which was 73.2%, would go up to 85% if you add those drops back in. And these were legitimate drops. I watched them. Um, so, you know, the, the larger context on this game, the Steelers were missing TJ Watt. They were missing Mick and Fitzpatrick in particular. And I guess Joe Hayden was out too. So Herbert probably would have been a little bit more troubled by the pass rush, which there wasn't much there. But he probably would have neutralized a decent amount of that pass rush too because of the fact that his time to throw was only 2.4 seconds, even though he was looking to run in this game. So that's a pretty quick time to throw. And again, he seems to do well with that. So I do not have a problem with him doing that. And uh, Herbert, if you look at his numbers, again, when we're talking about MVP race, he's sixth in EPA per play now, and he's third in grading. So he's getting way, way up there. And he is in the mix. He is definitely in the mix at this point. Big jump forward for Justin Herbert in this game. Okay, let's go to probably the most watched game of the non-island games, and that is the Dallas Cowboys at Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs were two-and-a-half-point favorites. The final score, a very uninspiring 19-9 Kansas City Chiefs. My adjusted score... 28 to 19 Kansas City. So a little higher scoring for both teams. I know people think this was a complete dud, this game. It was kind of dud-ish. But the success rates were not nearly as bad as what actually happened in this game. And we'll talk about what was holding down those teams offensively, despite the fact, especially the Chiefs, were able to have a fundamentally okay offense. Uh, so the headline here was this was the the disappointment bowl, the uh, overhyped bowl, the Two offenses fell flat on their face, Bull. And my alternative headline was, the Chiefs offense, at least, was solid, but unlucky compared to how they would normally play in these situations. So if you look, let's let's, let's talk about the Chiefs offense in particular, because I want to focus on how good or not good that they were in this game. I mean, they had a success rate in this game that was near 50%. It is a... And on a percentile basis, it was an 85th to 90th percentile type of game. Uh, There were four drops for Kansas City. And both teams struggled on late downs, but particular Kansas City struggled on late downs. When I talk about late downs, I mean third and fourth down. And those are really important because they're the highest leverage downs. If you convert, you maintain the ball. If you maintain the ball, that's hugely important in raising your chances of scoring, you know. Duh, right? But if you treat a third down play the same way you treat a first down play, you know, if you look at yards per play or you're looking at yards per attempt for a quarterback, you're not really bringing in the value that comes on those third downs. For most teams, there's a degree of luck on a game-by-game basis for what happens. Certain quarterbacks are generally better at converting on third down. So the Chiefs have been the best on third downs, mostly because of Patrick Mahomes. There is a sustainability to what he does. Yet, on this game... They were relatively bad when it came to their play on these third downs. I mean, the optics from a total standpoint don't look doesn't look that bad, but still four of twelve on third downs, which is a much worse than they do. And if we look at the expected points added on these plays, on these third down plays, Kansas City was a negative nine point nine EPA, and that's a big number. They haven't had a number that big. They've had a couple of numbers that big this season, but before that, they went multiple seasons without having that much struggle on third down. If you look at an aggregate over an entire season, in 2019, the Chiefs were plus 100 EPA on third and fourth downs. In 2020, they were plus 70 EPA on third and fourth downs. And going into this game, where they 
lost 10, right? Going into this game, they were plus 50. EPA. So this is a weird game, unlucky game, even an offense that's quote unquote struggling this season has been able to convert on third down. So you have that, you have the most impactful play of the game from a expected points added basis was the Travis Kelsey was almost impaled by the ball in the chest, right? It came right into his chest. <laughs> I was maybe slightly behind him, but still he dropped it and it, and it flew up in the air. And then it was an interception against Mahomes. So again, negative six EPA against him there. Uh, That was a big one. And then you also had the Mahomes strip sack, which for some quarterbacks, I I wouldn't discount it too much because it happens quite often to them. Mahomes, number one, does not take a lot of sacks. Number two, normally has good awareness. So I do wonder on that play, it was the Mink, uh, it was, I was about to say Micah Fitzpatrick. It was the Micah Parsons strip sack we saw the closing speed on Parsons. It was pretty insane what how quickly that he closed on Mahomes there. And I do think maybe we can cut him a little bit of slack about not being aware of that one because of the insane closing speed that Parsons had. You're just not going to see that from a normal guy lining up on the edge. He's not going to have that type of speed that Parsons has. I'm not sure exactly what his speed was, but let's remember that he tested, pro day tested, at, you know, 4-2 or whatever it was, um, 4-3, you know, which is which is ridiculous for a guy who's up in the 250-pound sort of, sort of range here. So those plays are not going to happen that often. The Chiefs' offense, especially in that first drive, looked like the dynamic offense that we had seen in the past. So I do think there's still momentum going for the Chiefs' offense here, which we can feel good about. Um, let's go over to our number of the game before we talk about that. And that number of the game here is 2 keep it simple, two. And that number represents the number of years since Dak Prescott has had this bad of an efficiency game as he did here. And so it, was, it hasn't been since week 12, 2019. So almost exactly two years ago against the Patriots that he had this poor of a performance in EPA. Again, the TOC's the Twitter offensive coordinators around full force on this one, coming after Kellen Moore of all people who may have been the darling of the TOC's uh going into this season and halfway midway through this season and I thought the criticism was a little bit weird because some of it was about not throwing the ball enough some of it was well you're missing your main pieces and you're not doing well I mean Dak missed throws okay he was four of 17 on throws beyond 10 air yards and he took sacks he took five sacks he had a you know there's a strip sack fumble on that one he threw interceptions so the passing game wasn't necessarily a great option to turn to on some of these plays where people were getting upset. And there was a similar dynamic to what we saw, I guess it was two weeks ago, or was it just last week? Maybe it was just last week. It, was, it seems seems so long ago that, uh, I think it was just last, it was actually just in week 10, where the Thursday night game of the Ravens versus the Miami Dolphins where they didn't have an answer for cover zero. So some of it is not just having an answer for cover zero. Some of it is cover zero is taking what is normally a high variance type of thing, like throwing the ball and cranking up the variance to 10 because you're giving the offense one-on-ones. So you're either going to get a sack an intercept, you're going to get sacks and interceptions probably more often than usual and incompletions more often than usual. But then when there is a completion, 
with one broken tackle or sometimes zero broken tackles that someone can take it all the way to the house. So you're, you're increasing the variance even more on these types of plays. Now, generally, blitzing, if you look at the EPA numbers, the, the, more, the more you blitz, on average, the better the defense does on these sorts of plays. But they can give up these huge plays, right? Um, so you're increasing the variance a lot. And the variance paid off for the Chiefs on this one when they did blitz. And they were able to get a lot of pressure. We saw Chris Jones move back on the inside. Uh, bringing in Melvin Ingram seems to have been extremely important for them. And they're starting to come come forward as far as what they're how they're playing there. So I think we have to give credit to the defense. We have to say this is a variance thing. He tried go balls to these receivers, even to CeeDee Lamb to, was the interception to end the first half. And it just wasn't working. It doesn't mean it won't work next time. It doesn't mean it was the wrong offensive coordinator. It doesn't mean Kellen Moore is at fault. It just means sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm going to lean more on that than I'm going to lean on the fact that the Twitter OC is no better than Kellen Moore what the solution was in that game or what he should have been doing in that game. Uh, and again, going back to this Chiefs defense, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just throw out a theory here that they were, well, not that they were loafing the first half of the season, but they had some guys who were out. They had some players who, you know, when you go AFC Championship, Super Bowl, Super Bowl, three straight years, you might want some, you might, you might not be ready to rip roaring, ready to go on week one of the NFL season, especially with COVID and everything that's going on. People are, you know, people are tired. People have not been enjoying themselves over the last year. And I think it might have just taken them a while to get into the groove here. Now I don't want to read too much into the small sample recently, but let's do some splits. Let's do some potentially deceptive splits on here. And the Chiefs defense, fourth worst in the NFL EPA per play. Uh so far this season, right? So they're fourth worst in the NFL. Um, not good, right? You'd say this is bad defense, but let's do the split game. Uh, they were dead last through week seven. And now over the last four weeks, they've been the sixth best team. Now, who have they faced there? Not the stiffest competition. Daniel Jones and the Giants. Jordan Love and the Packers, but then the Raiders, who have been struggling a bit, and now the Cowboys. So the Cowboys was a real test here. So relatively poor, but not awful competition, but also it is relatively poor competition. So I'm not crowning the Chiefs. I'm not saying that they're going to be a top 10 defense going forward, but I don't think they're going to be the worst defense in the NFL like they were before. And there is some sense to them rounding into form here, as we've seen, you know, we saw for the Patriots for many years where they were going to the Super Bowl over and over and over again, is that they'd have some struggles early and then pull it through in the rest of the season. I do think there is a difficulty when you're adding a month, a month and a half, uh, two months to the schedule that other teams don't have on, a, on an annual basis when you're going deep in the playoffs, that it can cause a little bit more of a hangover to start the next season. We hear a lot about the the, the Super Bowl hangover, the loser's curse for the person, team that loses the Super Bowl going into the next season. And there probably is a sliver of reality, at least, in what could be a noisy thing. Okay, before we get into more games, let's hit another sponsor here, Manscaped. My friends at Manscaped, they just launched new products, including their all-new ultra-premium body wash and a two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. It's time to give yourself or someone who needs it the gift of beautiful hair, skin, and balls this holiday season. Go to manscaped.com, use promo code PFF for 20% off and free shipping. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the Signature Lawnmower 4.0. You'll find that it's waterproof. You can use it in the shower. They launched the new two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. It's key ingredients for everything. It can nourish. It can hydrate. It can condition. It can do it all. Tis the season to load up on Manscaped products, so get yourself, your dad, your brother, and friends the best gift of all, Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. 
get 20% off and free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code PFF. Okay. Um, I'm going to hit, which wasn't, I'm going to hit the uh, Colts Bills game. I actually have a decent amount to say about this, despite the fact that it was not a particularly close game. This was, Buffalo was a seven point favorite. It didn't really move around much at all on there. Uh, the Colts win 41 to 15, a total wipeout. The score that I, my adjusted score is much, much closer, 28 to 17, but still an 11 point victory on the road is very solid for the Colts. And this was a huge, enormous loser for my best bets. I threw this one in where I probably shouldn't have because it wasn't, didn't really clear the threshold here. And I think I told you guys that, that it was more of a lean, but Anyway, I did officially make it a best bet, and it's a tremendous loser. So the headline on this game was, you know, the Bills ain't played nobody, another fake good team, and Josh Allen is back to 2019 Josh Allen, Josh Allen regression. My alternative headline is, the game was a little closer than the score, though I don't want to lean too far into that. And, you know, Allen is much closer to to the 2020 version than the 2019 version. Let's not start Allen is turning into 2019 Allen, because that's just simply not happening. Um, I'm going to go right into the number of the game here because it relates to how the game was closer than you might have thought. So the number of game is 10.7, and that is the, that's the expected points that the Bills lost in this game based on their special teams play. So we're talking about a fumble on the kickoff, and we're talking about missed field goals for uh, Tyler Bass, who had been very good coming into this game. So 10.7 is significant, of course. So the score is a little bit more narrow, but a certain victory. Uh, Both teams had almost identical success rates, running the ball and dropping back to pass. But big plays, either positive or negative, really favored the Colts in this one, especially negative plays by the Bills. So we talked about the special teams was a negative 10 EPA. Um, But there was also, of course, two interceptions that happened for the Bills, which were very negative. And the... The important thing here is that there's also a third down, a big third down advantage. And the way the Colts ran their offense, this is going to come into the Jonathan Taylor MVP-ish sort of discussion. I do think there is a fault with only looking at the expected points added and the efficiency on the Jonathan Taylor runs or any running backs runs and then saying that disqualifies them from the MVP conversation. I think the one element that you can throw in there, and this goes back to maybe the Adrian Peterson MVP and whether or not you could justify it in in 2012 is number one what is the running back giving you versus running with another runner which would have been inefficient right so it's your baseline should be lower because running plays are generally inefficient so therefore if you're running it with a different guy you're getting that boost and I I showed in some analysis in the offseason that you can get in an extremely good season you can get one to two wins uh over a backup running back with a strong running back simply looking at that now but if you're running more often than you should be running you'd say well that's a negative though that's the problem is that you should be just replacing some of those at least with passing which would hedge against a run heavy team and what they do now I will also say that I don't know if it's the case with Carson Wentz but when you run a lot what you're doing is you're actually introducing, in a way, some some variance into your offense because you're become very, very highly reliant upon third down conversions. You're going to need more third down conversions when you run the ball because you're not going to convert on first and second down as often. You're not going to have as many explosive plays 
You'll have some, but you're not going to have as many explosive plays. So you're going to need to, you know, matriculate the ball down the field and convert on third down. So then you're going to turn over to the quarterback to do that. So when you place a lot of the passing offense on these high leverage third downs, you're placing a much higher percentage of the passing offense on those downs than a pass heavy attack. You can get a high end outcome offensively from a poor quarterback as long as he can convert a handful of, of, of third downs. Now, it's not going to be the best offense for an entire season, for two seasons going forward and this and that, but for a short period of time, if you can control the game offensively and it's not a very negative play, it's not your typical negative play running the ball, if you get a little bit of juice to that, you can actually open up an off- a viable offensive scheme with a lower-rent quarterback. So in that way, you bring that into the equation, you can get some more value out of a running back than the simple EPA-ish efficiency numbers will tell you there. That being said, I think we have good enough quarterback play from other guys that I'm not going to lean towards um, Jonathan Taylor in this game. So again, we're talking about those third downs. That's what happened this game. You could point to Jonathan Taylor winning the game, but again, the Colts were 8 of 12 on third downs, including some longer ones. They converted a third and 10. They converted two third and eights. They converted a third and six. So, you know, half of their third downs that they converted were third and longs. They still had to convert third and longs to have this efficient of an offense. It can't just all be the running game here. And the last factor that brings this game a little bit closer than you might expect, uh, the Bills had six drops, which was almost 20% of... Um, Josh Allen's catchable passes, and there's only one drop for for the Colts. Now, I watched the drops. None were actually that egregious. As I mentioned earlier, when I watched the drops for Justin Herbert, those were pretty egregious. None of them were that egregious here, but it does narrow the adjusted score a little bit here. And because this is an analytics podcast, I'm legally obligated to talk about fourth down problems and Sean McDermott. Not the biggest issue. It wouldn't have ended up mattering in the end of things, but fourth and five, at the 31-yard line of the Colts, down 24-7 to with eight minutes left in the third quarter, and they kicked the field goal, a 49-yard field goal, which was missed, but in those conditions, probably not ideal also. But forget about being missed or not. You can't stop the other offense here. You're down multiple, multiple scores. Like, what's the point of cutting it to a 14-point lead? I think, again, you're saying, oh, we're cutting it to two scores either way. Well, it's two scores, but it's also two scores and you need to win in overtime. It's not just two scores and you hold them down. And plus, the assumption is baked into that that they're never going to score again with, what, 23 minutes of game time left? That's ridiculous, too. So McDermott, you know, get it together here, buddy. We saw... Uh, Staley fail on a bunch of fourth down decisions last week. Now we see McDermott. These are some of my favorite guys. Let's let, let's get it together a little bit there. Wouldn't have mattered in the grand scheme of things, but I don't like to see that. And it psychology is something that people probably talk about a little bit too much, but it does give a little bit of a signal that you're giving up or you're not. The offense is not going to be excited about that. The defense is not going to be excited about that type of play. Um Again, when we talk about the Colts and what they did in this game, I think it's important. They used play action on 43% of their passes, so they used this lower-risk game. They had a 5.6 A dot to not have a single pass more than 20 yards in the air. So, again, we talk about the value of the running game, which may not show up in the numbers. This is what it is. It allows you to play this no-turnover-worthy plays, low A dot, 
not throwing the ball downfield while also not throwing at a high volume. Normally, you'd see those things with a high volume. You'd see the low A dot with a high volume. You did not see that here. But again, Wentz did not have a great game, only a 66.2, zero big-time throws, um, but he converted on third down, which is what they needed to do. So let's talk Josh Allen really quickly. Because of QB wins, uh, Allen had sidestepped a lot of criticism this year. I hear the criticism coming out now. And you know what? Well, now they're six and four, right? That's the problem. They're six and four. They're behind the Pats who are seven and four. They had the easiest schedule in the NFL going into this game. I'm going to step to Josh Allen's defense here, which you would not expect from a PFF guy and a nerd and someone who's been critical of Josh Allen in the past and was very highly, highly skeptical of the fact that he would break out last year before it actually happened. And of course, I acknowledge it when it does happen. So let's talk about him. Because I'm seeing Josh Allen is now going back to 2018-2019 version of Josh Allen, not the 2020 version. Let's just compare the numbers before we get crazy here. And I know that he's had a very up-and-down season, but still, it's better to compare the season-long numbers than to say, oh, he only had a couple of good games, so let's, if we throw those out, you know, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's look at the year-long numbers, and then we can figure out the other stuff. So in efficiency, EPA per play, he is .14 this season versus .2. And then in 2019, it was zero. It was basically flat. So again, much closer to what he's doing last season than what he did in 2019. His grade, his PFF grade, is an 81 this season versus a 90 last season. It was a 64 in 2019, much closer to 2020. Yards per attempt, if you want to take a traditional statistic, he's 7.2 yards per attempt this season versus 7.5 last season, slightly lower, but only 5.7 in 2019. Touchdown rate, 5.2% this year versus 57 last year, 3.8% the year before. Um, he was always good at avoiding interceptions. So that was a problem in this game, and I think it's something that he'll probably do better on going forward because 2.2% interception rate, which is the same as last season, was only 1.9%. So he was actually better at avoiding mistakes previously when not taking chances. Big-time throw rate is actually higher this season than last season. It was half, less than half of that prior to before that. So, you know, Allen is not 2019 If you hear anyone saying that, they're wrong. You could could ignore that and maybe other things that they say also. And the Bills, we're talking about positioning going forward versus the Patriots who are a game better. Which team is better? Well, look at the implied odds in markets right now. I'd love to bet the Bills to still go ahead and win the AFC East because they're facing the Patriots two more times this season. But the the markets right now, at least according to the numbers on our friends DraftKings, who I'm going to talk about in a second, they are 60-40 favorite over the Patriots to still win the division despite being down in the standings because they have those two head-to-head matchups and they are still a superior team. Believe it. Whether you want to believe it or not, they are. Okay, let's hit that DraftKings ad real fast for Thanksgiving. It's about family, food, and free bets. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner, has Turkey Day no-brainer. You cannot miss. New customers can bet just $1 on any Thanksgiving game, and you win $100 in free bets if either team scores a point. That sounds fairly likely. Um, The Sportsbook is not available in your state. Go ahead and play some DFS. Play for millions on DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contest. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $1 on any Thanksgiving game and then win $100 in free bets if either team scores a point. 
That's promo code PFF this Thanksgiving at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, let's get on through the rest of these, which will not be as detailed as that last wrap-up, but we'll still give you the good stuff. We have Washington football team at Carolina Panthers. Carolina, three-point favorite. Washington football team wins by six points, 27-21. My adjusted score is Washington football team by five points, 29-24, so very close. The headline is Panthers defense fails. My alternative headline is the football team is reaping the rewards of late down regression. Okay, I'm going to roll right into the number of the game because it goes along with this. 12.5 is the number of the game. And that is the expected points added that they gained on third and fourth down, on those late downs for the Washington football team. Going into last week against the Bucks, the Washington football team were by far the worst team in the NFL, not only defensively giving up an extraordinary amount of conversions over expectation on those late downs, but were also pretty poor offensively converting. They had these games, like against the Packers earlier this year, where they had the ball down near the goal line, and they couldn't score, and they couldn't convert multiple fourth downs. Now they're converting. Now they're able to do this. Six for 12 on third down, but two of two on fourth down in this game, where they needed three yards and five yards on those, on those fourth downs. That was a huge, huge play for them. That, more than anything, is turning things around. And now we're hearing about, oh, Taylor Heineke, maybe he's pretty good. You know, he's, he's had some luck these last two weeks. So the t- total success rate offensively for the Panthers was actually higher than it was for the Washington football team. 49 to 45, but the uh, football team was excellent throwing the ball and dropping back to pass, 90th percentile success rate and efficiency. But they only passed it 42% of the time in this game. They're 15% under expectation. So that's what kept the game close in this sort of game. And, you know, the, they survived also a Antonio Gibson fumble. These fumbles are hugely negative plays, as I've said many times. Negative 4.5 EPA. Um, they're, just, they're just killers, these fumbles, because they're normally on favorable down and distance situations for the offense. So the Panthers' defense, to go back to... I think a missed narrative on this. They weren't that bad. They just couldn't stop these third and fourth downs, which can be poor play calling, can be poor execution, can be poor everything, or, you know, there's some luck involved in here. Uh, They had a 43% pressure rate. They had a 10% sack rate, which is good. They had three sacks, but football team only dropped back to pass 27 times, which made it difficult for that blitzing offense to affect them. So maybe that was the game plan. That's why football team passed it so far under expectation was to avoid that blitzing defense, which I still think is good. I would not, you know, slough off too much on them. So the Panthers, they had trouble on third and fourth down. There were two of nine on third down, one of three on fourth down. They lost about 10 expected points on those plays. They had higher yards per play, 6.1 to 5.7, which was helped somewhat by the fact that they passed it a little bit more often. So Heineke did not have a turnover-worthy play, which is huge for him. Perhaps it's helped by lower volume, but he had an 88 grade and a 30% play action rate. So those are great numbers for him, and that's how they were able to win this game is he's not giving anything away here. 
Newton performed pretty well in a tougher spot because they had to throw the ball a decent amount. 73 grade, which isn't great, but they only had a 10% play action rate because of the situations they were playing in. And um, the big thing here is that the play that I want to highlight outside of quarterback play, which I normally focus on, I do want to talk about Terry McLaurin a little bit because he got half of their receiving yards. He got 103 receiving yards, which doesn't sound that impressive, but they only got, like I said, they barely were dropping back the pass. They only got 206 receiving yards, period. A couple of really nice contested catches and one, another one that he almost made. What's interesting about McLaurin, you wouldn't think of him as the huge contested catch guy, but he has 23 contested catches this season. The next closest is 15, so he's way over everyone else. And I think Heineke has been good for him in a way because he's willing to throw him some contested plays, but he's also a guy who can make those plays. So I think it was a great game for him in this one. Okay, Baltimore Ravens minus Lamar Jackson at Chicago Bears. Baltimore, 1.5 points. They were a favorite. So I think that's important context to keep in mind, even without Lamar Jackson, one and a half point favorites. Baltimore wins 16-13. My final adjusted score is 22-16, Baltimore. And this is a winner for us in the actual score because we had Chicago plus six before that line moved. So we got a little lucky there with a lot of closing line value. And the headline for this game is going to be Ravens can win without Lamar Jackson and fields down, Dalton up. The alternative headline is, you know, everyone was just bad in this game. This is just like a much, like you might, there might be some good feelings about Dalton or what the Ravens were able to do without Lamar Jackson, but everyone was just kind of bad in this one. There's, there's no real way around it. So let's, let's talk about point movement here. Um, again, let's talk about the number of the game. Sorry to get into this. 3.9 is my number of the game for this. And that is the yards per play that the Ravens average in this game. Again, it was just bad. 3.9 for the entire game. Uh, so let's talk about line movements a bit here. You know, people like to use the point differentials to say, oh, Lamar Jackson, it went from six to one and a half. So therefore Lamar Jackson is worth four and a half points. Nah. It's really more than that. We have to look at win probability. So this type of move is about like a 20% win probability type of move. And I know Marquise Brown is maybe in there, so it's a little bit chipped to that. So that's how we think about it, more like a 20% win probability, which is hugely, hugely, hugely significant. Because six is a big, you're going through a lot of key numbers. You're going through the six, you know, through the the three, all the way down to one and a half. So there's not that big of a difference between being a one and a half point favorite and being a two and a half point underdog. So we saw a similar movement when Rodgers went out against Kansas City, but that was more like 25%-ish. So the market is definitely valuing Jackson being out less than it's valuing Rodgers being out, despite the fact that Rodgers is being replaced by a first-round pick and Jackson was being replaced by a former UDFA. But then again, they may have had more confidence in a way. They may have had more confidence for the UDFA than they did for... Uh, Jordan Love, which is not exactly an endorsement of Love here to say Tyler Huntley may be a better quarterback. Uh, let's go down a little bit further here to figure out what what's happening with this game. So 30th percentile success rates and efficiency for both teams. And what happened optically for Dalton was much better than Fields. 
He averaged 0.3 EPA per play versus a negative 0.4, but he had a 62.5 passing grade for a reason. I mean, Fields was 57, so he was even worse. But the reason for that is that it was all just on the big plays. I mean, they got a 60-yard touchdown on a wide receiver screen, and then the big touchdown that they had to um, to Goodwin, I thought that was a good play but by Dalton because he brought in protection. It was a cover zero. It was a fourth and 11, and they chucked it up and got that. Now, maybe that's something they actually don't get if they have fields in there and he's not able to direct the protections in the same way. But let's face it, Dalton's not really raising the floor that much for you other than the fact that he's probably going to avoid some sacks, and we did see another strip sack for Justin Fields, which has become a recurring problem for him. And I think, you know, I discount the Mahomes. You may say I'm being unfair because I said, oh, the Mahomes strip sack, I'm not going to count that much, but then I'm going to count this one. Well, one has a history of getting strip sacks or being strip sacked, and that is Justin Fields holding the ball too long. The other does not. So that's why I'm going to discount one a little bit more than the other. And we're going to have some ugly Thanksgiving here with the the Lions and the Bears coming up here. It's going to be disgusting. Speaking of the Lions, uh, Lions, Detroit Lions at Cleveland Browns. Cleveland ended a 13-point favorite. They win 13-10. The Browns, my final adjusted score is 17-10, so slightly better. Still not good. Headline is Baker is failing. My alternative headline is, yeah, it's fair to say that at this point. Uh, The number of the game, 77 is the number of the game. And I'm normally not an absolute stat number sort of guy, But that was the total passing yards for Tim Boyle in this game. 77 passing yards in an NFL football game. Uh, So taking betting line movement for what it means. Remember before we were talking about Lamar Jackson, if you look at how the line moved, it was maybe a 20% move. For Goff, it was like maybe 5%, but probably not even 5%, probably less than that. But it's just, you know, it got extreme to even more extreme. It went from, I think it was 10.5 maybe at one point, 10, 10 10.5 at one point, moving out to 11, and then Goff is out, and then out to 13. Just ugly across the board. Um, the running game held the Browns in. They had slightly positive EPA, and the passing game was very, very poor. And the one positive in this game is the Browns' defense was doing what it was supposed to do, holding down this Tim Boyle-led Lions. And the blemish, which is a big blemish, but the blemish was a little bit of a freakyish sort of play. It was a 62-yard touchdown for DeAndre Swift, it was a third and eight that this happened. Point plus point six point three expected points on this play. A huge, huge, huge play. Biggest play of the game. So you know you shouldn't let that happen. You got to tackle better. But I'd rather see that happen than the fact that they gave up. You know some long drives where Tim Boyle was you know operating against them well in poor weather. That would have been difficult to see. And the Lions, again, they're leaning so heavily on the run since Dan Campbell took over at play calling. Uh, They only passed, they only dropped the pass 50% of the time, even though they were trailing almost the entire game. And I was going to talk more about what I'm going to call BDS, although that name is a little bit conflicted because it also stands for a, like an Israeli, I don't want to say anti-Israel, but it's like a boycott divestment and sanctions is what they call it. It's like you don't invest in Israeli stuff because of the Palestinian crisis. But anyway, I'm calling BDS. I'm making my own BDS, Baker Derangement Syndrome. And it's not even about the on the field stuff. I think it's fair to critique all the on the field stuff is. But man, people have really wrapped up everything in hating or loving Baker Mayfield. Maybe I fall a little bit 
on the contrarian, you know, defending him a little bit too much. Maybe I'm being affected by it. Maybe I have uh, Baker derangement syndrome, derangement syndrome. And I just think like anything that happens with the guy, whether it's his wife's Instagram post, which she deleted, by the way, and and said she didn't, she apologized for, unlike some other people, uh, Odell Beckham Sr. And whether it's that stuff, whether it's the fact that they don't like he's in the commercials, even though he's a great actor, we've got to give him that. Whether they don't like the whole discussion around oh, what would happen if this was another quarterback doing the same sort of things. I get it. He's not, you know, he's not everyone's cup of tea, but... I do think people have gone a little bit nuts and it's affected a little bit of not only how they react to all of the all of the uh, off the field stuff, but the on the field stuff, too. I think it's really a question with Baker here is I was pretty skeptical of him being the guy, especially when he was struggling last season. We're seeing again this season. You know, is it weather? Is it injuries? Who knows what's going on? Um, He normally is an accurate quarterback and we're seeing actual legitimate inaccuracy issues here, which maybe you don't necessarily expect, but he's going to have to get things going here in the second half of the season. They have him under contract. So you don't have to worry about it, of course, until the offseason, but they have him under contract. He has a guaranteed $19 million coming to him. He's not going anywhere. But, like, do you look at someone like Jimmy Garoppolo? I know it could seem like replacing one flawed quarterback for another, but, you know, he's someone who might be out there. Do you look at the draft? trading up potentially now that you have a pretty solid core across other positions. Do you look at other areas? Because I don't think you should let the 19 million you have coming due to Baker next season affect you at all when it comes to potentially looking to, to upgrade there and have a better long-term plan. And at least as of now, I think the extension is off the board um, unless he was taking a serious, serious, serious discount. And I doubt he'd want to do that right now just knowing that he'd be kind of selling low, selling himself away, his next year's away low at this point with how he's playing. Okay, let's go to San Francisco at San Francisco 49ers at the Jacksonville Jaguars. San Francisco ended up a seven-point favorite. 32-10 49ers, 33-8 San Francisco is my adjusted score. So rarely do you see a 20-point blowout actually look worse on the adjusted score, but this really was a worse game. And the headline here is 49ers back in the mix. And my alternative headline is going to be, yeah, 49ers are back in the mix, big time. They're on the cusp of getting the seventh playoff spot. And my alternative headline, which I've been hammering on, so I don't want to hammer on too much, is also Jimmy G is balling. I'm sorry. He's playing well. Sorry, haters. He is. Um, and my number of the game is four, the number four, and that is how many plays the Jaguars offense had with eight, had, had run with eight minutes and 20 seconds left in the second quarter. They only run four plays on offense. The 49ers had run 34 plays at that point in time. So another reason why the adjusted score is even worse than the actual score is the Jaguars got a touchdown at the end of the game, down 30-3, to their last drive, a 75-yard touchdown. And I'm seeing some numbers out there being spread about Trevor Lawrence. Now, the Trevor Lawrence thing, let's get into, let's get into this a little bit. Um, because the, the football media cool kids out there who I introduced you to in the past, the Justin, also the Justin Fields apologists, are now going over to Trevor Lawrence, Apologensia. And 
I'm okay with some of that there, but I get a little bit annoyed by the sharing of video clips because I could look up the drops that have happened to any quarterback this year and put out a two-minute video clip of, of drops. Like every single quarterback in the NFL, you can do that for. So I think we have to really say, let's not just discount all the numbers. Let's say there have been a lot of drops. Uh, but when you have a quarterback whose grading is near the bottom of the league, who he's got a 58 grade, his EPA slightly negative, not super negative though. He's still been better than Fields and better than Zach Wilson this year in those categories. The question of when should you start to be worried about that is a legitimate question. It is. You can think about when you should start to be worried. Despite you may see him throwing good passes, there are things that are not happening clearly. I mean, I've seen some of the clips where it's, you know, he's barely missing someone down the field on a go route where they're not open. And yeah, the guys underneath are not that open either, but you're going to have a much better chance completing those passes potentially than you are throwing to covered go routes. Like a covered go route is tougher to hit than a covered comeback or something like that. So some of this is decision and, and, and there's only so much we can digest over hundreds of plays with our eyes as opposed to what we're seeing in something like EPA or something like our grading, which already has all of those graded, those great systematically graded for you. And you know, for one game, you can discount or throw away a bad grade, bad EPA per play, and you can explain that away. For two games, you can explain that away. For six games, you could probably explain that away. For an entire season, maybe you can even explain that away. But we do, but it's not infinite, right? The idea that we can't judge someone until they have good weapons, good coaching, good whatever. I mean, some quarterbacks never get all of these elements in their entire careers. So should we never judge them in their entire careers? Sam Darnold probably never had that in New York. So should we never judge Sam Darnold until that? No, it's just the longer it goes, the more worried, the more likely it is you should become worried. And that is a fair thing to talk about. Now, when is that? Is it at this point? Hmm, maybe a slight degree of worry, but not much at this point. Is it the entire season? Yeah, I think maybe the entire season you start to get definitely somewhat worried. If it continues into next season, then you're getting much, much worried. I think two seasons is, you know, outside of Josh Allen type of outliers, two seasons, you can push the panic button a lot more there. And if you think about the numbers here, again, if you plot all the quarterbacks we've been grading, the rookies we've been grading since 2006, you plot through week 11, their EPA per play, their efficiency versus their grading. You know, Lawrence is down in that lower section where it's got tons and tons and tons of failed quarterbacks. There are a couple that end up being, you know, career-long sort of quarterbacks like Joe Flacco and other things like that. And there are a couple who end up becoming elite or elite-adjacent type of quarterbacks, and those are Matthew Stafford and Josh Allen. So I do think there's importance when you're when you're judging Lawrence, uh, Lawrence to say he has those high-end physical traits. And, you know, no quarterbacks, when it comes to throwing the ball, really have higher-end physical traits than guys like Matthew Stafford and Josh Allen. So there probably is something to that. And maybe you'd be more worried about two, if you're Tua-type physical traits in that same category, in that same neighborhood, than you are for Allen. So there is a chance, but you'd much rather see him playing well because you see the sustained, successful quarterbacks in their careers generally also play well as rookies. So there is something to it. 
okay? But we don't have to classify anyone as a bust. We don't have to say we're extremely worried. We don't have to say that we are we're actually worried at this point, but it is perfectly okay to say when should we start to be worried because there, you cannot go out for an infinite timeline on poor grading, poor EPA per play, poor completion percentage over expectation, and that be excusable for years going forward. It's something to talk about. It's legitimate. Let's not shut down the conversation. Okay. Next here, Packers at Vikings. This one's a good one. This one was a fun one. This is probably the best game uh, amongst a slate that did not have a lot of high-end offensive play. The Packers were a 1.5 favorite in this game. Vikings win by three points. My adjusted score here is Packers by only two. Packers by two points. So even though Minnesota won by three points, Packers by two points. And the headline here is you can't trust any defense. And my alternative headline is. Didn't we already know this, that you can't trust any defense? Plus, Cousins was good, and people are talking about Cousins this one, but Rodgers was actually better in this game. He played even better than Cousins did here. Now, I had this as being close, right? And I saw a number from Football Outsiders from a friend of the pod, Aaron Schatz, at Football Outsiders, where he said that this was the most improbable loss, according to their numbers, their DVOA type of numbers, that the Packers should win in like 95% of circumstances based upon the team's different numbers in this game. Eh, yeah, I don't know about that. I'm questioning that one here. I think maybe it's relying a little too heavily on like the extreme efficiency that the Packers had, but you know, there are missed field goals that happen, which we saw in this game. There are, you know, muffed punts. There are other lots of things that can happen. So even if you have an extreme, extremely good efficiency game, like we saw from the Packers, I don't think this is the most improbable loss or even close to that. And according to my numbers, Green Bay was two points better. You know, so definitely not that improbable. And that goes into our number of the game, though, to show how good they were offensively. It's 99.6 is the number of the game here. And that is the percentile for the Packers' efficiency by EPA per play. This is a 99, 99.6 percentile. So one of the best games you could possibly have as far as how efficient that offense was. They had a better success rate, better efficiency. They were influenced a little bit by the fact that they had a 68% pass rate, whereas the Vikings only passed it 56% of the time. Uh, But if you look at Cousins, people are kind of raving about Cousins in this game. He only had a 64.8 grade as opposed to a grade in the 80s for Rodgers, which is a little bit weird. I feel like both of those guys should be pumped up a bit. Um... So the Packers, they lost 3.9 expected points on that field goal. There was another three expected points on a deep defensive pass interference that the Vikings gained. So those those came into play. And they also got, they also were benefited, or no, no, sorry, not benefited, but they also lost something from the fact that there was only so few drives in this game. This is a game both offenses were being so successful and running the ball a decent amount for both teams, especially the Vikings, that there were just not that many drives. There were only nine real drives, if you don't count end of half type of stuff, for the Vikings to eight for the Packers. So it's, it's only a differential of one, right? But that becomes a big differential when you only have eight. So the Packers only had eight drives, and they ended up scoring 31 points. That's pretty impressive. 
Um, so the points per drive was actually better for the Packers, even still. Just the way sometimes the way these things work, right? You you get the ball to start the half and you finish the half with the ball, and that does not happen to your opponent the next time. And the differential becomes more meaningful the fewer drives there are in aggregate during the game. And that's what happened in this one. So I think Rodgers is like really, really performing well. He is in very much so in that MVP conversation. Second best EPA per play. I have a feeling he will catch uh, Stafford eventually and pass him since they are so close after Stafford on back-to-back island games uh, pooped the bed. Put Rodgers in really good position here, and again, the narrative if they would have come, if they would have won this one rather than the Vikings coming back, would have shifted quite a bit. And I feel like Rodgers should get some of that benefit. And Justin Jefferson, people are going to be talking about him a lot coming out of this game. I mentioned in the offseason that he could already be the best receiver in the NFL, and I think some people are starting to catch on to that. So we'll we'll see going forward. I'm not going to make any declarative proclamations on that, since there's so many great receivers out there right now. But Justin Jefferson is absolutely balling. Okay, Miami Dolphins at New York Jets. Not the most exciting game here, but I do want to talk about a couple of things. Three and a half point favorites for the Miami Dolphins. They win by seven points, 24 to 17. My adjusted score has it 29 to 23, so a six-point differential. Headline is good game for Tua. My alternative headline is not so sure. Now, Tua had a 77 grade. He had .33 EPA per play, which is an 85th percentile type of game. It's a good game. But how did he accomplish this? Okay, 5.1 average depth of target, really low. And they weren't, it wasn't like a high volume passing game that he did 5.1. They weren't using a ton of quick game in this sort of thing here. He only threw three passes more than 10 yards downfield the entire game. One was a 65 yard touchdown to Mac Hollins, which honestly looked like he put his whole body and soul into it. And it still was underthrown pretty significantly. A bad interception was another play that went more than 10 yards downfield where it sailed over Jalen Waddell and was intercepted by the safety. And then an 18-yard completion to Durham Smythe, which was 14 air yards on that one. Zero big-time throws for Tua. We did not give a big-time throw on the severely underthrown deep pass to Matt Collins. 52% pass rate. Didn't really pass it that often. And... This, this leads into our number of the game, which I think is pretty interesting. And that's 100%. 100 is our number of the game. And that is when I look at run-eligible downs. So downs where a, a team were con- could conceivably run the ball. In other words, I'm eliminating two-minute drill at the end of halves. And I'm eliminating third down beyond three yards. So on any of the other downs where you could – these are downs where you can conceivably run the ball. Because you can't play action. This is a play action stat. You cannot play action on downs. You can't play action on third and 10. Nobody's going to fall for it, right? So on run eligible downs, on play action eligible downs, the Dolphins use play action 100% of the time. So again, that shows you this game plan that they had for Tua, that they're not just dropping back and passing. Um, they have 18 play action dropbacks. They had seven run pass options they're using with him. And even on those play action plays where traditionally, not the RPOs, but traditionally on other plays, guys will get downfield more. And again, I mentioned he only threw the ball downfield more than 10 yards downfield on three plays. He was only averaging a 5.7 average depth of target on those play action plays. 
So I'm still very questionable on Tua going forward. I think that might have been the biggest thing from this game is to take away some people maybe buying back into him as the potential guy. Uh, I agree he's been injured. I agree that his defensive line stinks, although he got a little bit better protection in this game. But the continued evidence is that he's not really a high-end player. He is a player where if you have great surroundings, he can do well. The problem is the Dolphins have blown a lot of their picks, and they don't really have great surroundings. And, you know, they traded up for Jalen Water, where they could have used had another first-round pick to use. Uh, Tua is 17th in EPA per play right now and 19th in grading after being 26th and 28th the year before. So he has taken a step forward, uh, similar in some ways to what Josh Allen had done, but... I don't know if he has the Josh Allen upside or even the Trevor Lawrence upside that we just talked about or the Matthew Stafford upside, those sort of guys. That's why I'd be a little bit more concerned about him, although he does have the rest of the season to prove himself. Just I just got to see more of these high-end plays going forward. Even Trevor Heineke does not – sorry, Trevor. Taylor Heineke, who does not have a great arm, he's at least attempting some of the more of these high-end plays that we're not seeing from Tua. Not every game is going to be against the New York Jets going forward. Okay, Saints at Philadelphia Eagles. Eagles close at minus three after the news of all of the Saints injuries. They win the game 40-29, to and I was a little bit surprised to see that the final, my adjusted score was 28-24. It was, pretty, it was closer because Philly was blowing them out until the fourth quarter here. Uh, Eagles. So the headline is all aboard the Hurts-Eagles bandwagon. My alternative headline is you know, Hurts probably actually wasn't as good as you think, and the offense wasn't as successful as some people think, but I'm still on the Hurts bandwagon. You cannot knock me off. I'm still driving the bandwagon. But I'll tell you about the bandwagon. You know, last week and, and earlier this season, you know, you, you got into the back of the bandwagon. We have some nice, you know, three-by-three three rows uh, back there. You know, you could, you could lie down. You could take a nap. You know, there was no one there. Was no one there. Um, now... You know, it's not full. You could you could still get a couple of aisle or window seats at this point in the back of the bandwagon. You're not stuck in the middle necessarily in the middle seat, but it's filling up. Not as much elbow room. No one's lying down anymore. It's starting to fill up. But also, I'll tell you to get in now because eventually there's going to be a wait list on on getting into the Hertz bandwagon. So you have your chance here. Um, you know, he been to, to be honest, he was not great in this game, but some of that is because he didn't hit the high-end deep passes where a few of them were, were close to connecting. So it's just going to be the type of offense, the type of run-heavy heavy offense they, they do where if he's not hitting those deep passes, the passing game is always going to be a little bit suspect because they're running the ball so effectively. But again, you know, they, they put up 240 yards. And against a number one efficiency number three I think success rate run defense for the Saints and but it's interesting when you're looking at all of these measures whether the final score or the accumulation of different stats I think an important number and my number of the game here is 28 and that is the number of total possessions in this game there were 28 possessions in this game remember when I was talking about the Vikings and um, Packers there were really 17 real total possessions in that game. There were 28 in this game, significantly, significantly more. Um, the Saints, you know, the biggest play in the game was the pick six, which you shouldn't be surprised by. There were fumbles on both sides that kind of net each other out. Simeon came came along in the second half, but I think anyone who's stopped watching after the first half, which is probably most people, would not have really noticed that that ended up happening. 
And uh, I think what we're going to end up seeing with Hertz going forward is maybe he's going to pass it a little bit more. They were 39% pass right here, which is 13% under expectation, which sticks with what they've been doing. So I'm not going to necessarily go against it. But what I think the Hertz is doing, and this is another thing that doesn't necessarily show up in his particular numbers, even though he did have three rushing touchdowns, he did have 70 yards rushing. But Miles Sanders with 94 yards rushing and Jordan Howard with 63 yards rushing. It's like revitalizing any serviceable type of running backs. I mean, maybe Sanders is a little bit better than serviceable, but he hasn't been great in his career. Just revitalizing those guys. And there becomes a point where Hurts, you know, he had 19 rushing attempts in this game. He had four scrambles and 15 designed runs. When it's one thing where there's a threat of someone keeping the ball in the design run to open up running lanes. But that threat is going to adjust significantly. This isn't, you know, Ryan Tannehill keeping it once every two games. This is someone doing it 15 times in one game. We're in that Lamar Jackson tier. And Hurt seems to be pretty good about not injuring himself. We'll see a little bit more. I'm a little concerned about sometimes I think he should just slide down rather than take on. But I think he's a big dude, so he thinks he can he can run through his safety sometimes. But when you're that significant, that's when those running game the juiced up efficiency happens there and Hertz value is underplayed in his individual numbers. Okay, let's talk Houston, Tennessee. Yikes. Tennessee Titans, 10 point favorite. Houston wins the game 22 to 13. My imply my adjusted score is extremely close. It's Houston, but only 19.9. I'm going down to the decimals here. So you can see this. 19.9 to the Titans, 19.7. This is a humiliating loser of a best bet also, by the way, because I had the Titans minus 10, which at one point moved to 10.5, so I felt good about that value, but then it dropped back down to 10 by the end. So the headline is Titans offense can't run, can't do anything without Derrick Henry. My alternative headline is the Titans offense can't run with seven turnover-worthy plays and fumbles and special teams mistakes. <laughs> so they cannot win with that many mistakes. And this goes into some of the overall opinion on this game. The number of the game here is 209. Now, 209, that is the number of yards the Titans outgained the Texans by. They had 400 yards of offense versus only 200 and something yards of offense for the Texans. Yet, they got thoroughly dominated in this game. And again, seven turnover-worthy plays for Ryan Tannehill. Six and one quarter, which is the most ever in one quarter. The seven turnover-worthy plays, it's two plus, you know, no one has more than five in a game other than Ryan Tannehill. So this was just a bad, bad, bad game here. So I'll give some credit here to one of the, uh, the football media cool kids, a leading football media cool kid, who's also a friend of the show, though. Uh, Benjamin Solak, Ben Solak, you know, I like to, while I like to tongue-in-cheek deride them on the show here, I also, you know, like to stay friendly. It's like high school, you know, you gotta, you gotta maintain some friendly relationships with the jocks and the nerds and, you know, the stoners and uh, everyone else there, and so I, I maintain friendly relationships with, with these guys on the Football Media Cool Kids. He wrote an article about how the Titans' offense was broken without Henry. I thought he overstated it a bit. Now, I realize this confident, explicit, somewhat aggravating to those who are focused in on things like sample size, that, that, that type of language, it works, though. 
to to get to get people's attention. But when he wrote an article based upon a lot, largely based upon some splits on play action, and at that point in time, weeks nine and ten, the Titans had seventeen play action attempts. I wasn't going to read too much into it. I think this game, you can read a little bit more into it, but again, it's hard when you're throwing so many turnover-worthy plays and you're down early to run any sort of offense, but they clearly do not have any threat of explosive runs in the run game. They turned it over more to Adrian Peterson in this game, which makes absolutely no sense at all to me. Um, And I also think it's fair when you're saying you're skeptical of an analysis based upon a small sample size. That doesn't mean that it has no chance of being correct. It just means that it has a lower chance of being correct. So skepticism can be warranted even if it ends up being correct, the take. That's something to, to think about, too. Uh, the offensive success rate actually wasn't that awful for the Titans. They were about a 50th percentile. It was much lower for the Texans in this game. Again, you know, worst turnover-worthy play, stuff of the season. They had a muffed punt, which is a monster loss. But the most important aspect of this game I want to talk about here It's not, you know, are the Titans still contenders because they're going to win enough games to win the division. They're not going to get the first seed. We we kind of knew that. Um, Although it'll be an interesting matchup against the um, Patriots coming up here. But the most important aspect of this game, the question that I was left with, the most confused, perplexing thing in this game was, why does Mike Vrabel not wearing a hat? in this rain. He looked absolutely miserable. Does he enjoy wetness all over his face? What's going on here? I have, I have so many questions. The only, this is the most perplexed I've been by anything since when we get into December and there's a game in Soldier Field and you see Matt Nagy and his, you know, chrome dome, his, uh, his shaved bald head that, and he's just wearing a visor with an open top freezing the top of his head all the heat escaping you can see it escaping out of the top of his head when Nagy is not wearing a beanie or at least wearing a full cap that's a little bit more that's even more perplexing I would say actually it's about a tie like rain all over your face or open top with with heat just flying out of the top of your head in sub-zero temperatures. Both of those, I have no idea what's going on. We need to get some hat consultants for these guys or someone to sit them down and tell them, you know what, Mike, you don't you don't look that bad in a hat. Go ahead, throw a hat on. Or same thing with Nagy. You know, the visor, I understand it's your thing, it's your look, but we may have to pivot here for the good of the team and the good of your, your health, quite honestly. Okay, let's go to some more games here, but before we get to the last few games here, I'm going to do Western and Southern, whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know if you're a financial future? Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com. Ask Chris, one more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash Chris. You are watching. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, uh, Bengals Raiders. This is interesting. This is an important one. Uh, Bengals were one and a half point favorites. They win 32 to 12, a stomping, a 20 point stomping. My adjusted score, much, much, much closer. 24-19 Cincinnati. So uh, Bengals, so only five points as opposed to 20. So the headline here is Bengals back in the playoff mix. You can fork the Raiders. They're done. 
my alternative headline is, yeah, Raiders are fourth. Let's fork them. But the Bengals still have something to prove. And that goes to my number of the game here. The number of the game for this one is 3.8. And that's the yards per play for the Bengals in this game. The Bengals are 6-4. and four. They have a 52-point differential. That's what people are pointing to to say, hey, look, this is a great team. This is a good team. This is a contender. Uh, but let's look at this particular game as a microcosm here. They had a worse success rate than the Raiders did. It was a three-point game in the fourth quarter, even though they won by 20, at, during, the, during the middle of the fourth quarter. Um, and the biggest thing here is the Raiders just could not buy a third down. They were one for seven on third downs. They only converted a third and two. That's it. They failed on third and one, third and three, third and four, third and six, third and eight, and third and 12. They did not attempt a fourth down, and I'm not sure how that is. How how do you lose by 20 points and not attempt a fourth down at all in this game? And I went through the plays here. The Raiders gave up about eight, nine percent in win probability, punting or kicking on fourth and short situations where they were either, they're between their own 40 and the opponent's 35. Basaccia, the Basaccia bump that they were supposed to be getting there from the interim head coach. What's going on here, buddy? Uh, I don't think they're a very analytically inclined organization there. I think their main stats guy is a former uh, uh, film head uh, analyst who's a little bit on the older side, too. Not to be ageist, but less likely you're going to be numbers inclined in that circumstance. Uh, let's look at here. Burrow, you know, he had a 57.8 grade versus a 56.5 for Carr. No big time throws for Burrow. He had one turnover worthy play, which did not, you know, affect him that much. And Jamar Chase, his slump continues. He had six targets, three catches, 32 yards. He did have the touchdown, though. Uh, but there's only 148 total passing yards in this game for the Bengals. So again, Bengals, you know, good victory. You eliminated the a flailing Raiders offense from the from the playoffs, but I think offensively, we got to see some more here. I know you're under pressure. The Raiders have a good pressure defense, but we got to see a little bit more offensively. They also had a long-ish uh mix-in touchdown run where you don't want to be reliant upon those going forward. Okay, let's hit our last game here. And if you're a Seahawks fan, I it, this is unfortunate for you. And it is the Arizona Cardinals at the Seattle Seahawks. Three and a half point favorite for the Seahawks. The Cardinals win. The Colt McCoy-led Cardinals. Colt McCoy, no DeAndre Hopkins. Cardinals win 23 to 13. My adjusted score is 27 to 14. Arizona, so even a little bit worse. The headline is Russ is cooked. Not Russ is, not let Russ cook, but Russ is cooked. The alternative headline, Seahawks defense, man. Russ is bad, but this defense is, whoo. Lord, what's going on here? Um, it could have been even worse. That's what's sad about this game. Uh, kicker, uh, Matt Prater for the Cardinals, missed an extra point, missed a 39 and a 36-yard field goal. The Cardinals had an 85th percentile success rate in this game. They could not be stopped with Colt McCoy. Uh, Russ is now 26th in EPA per play this season, 18th in grading. Last year, he was 19th and 6th. The year before, he was 7th and 1st. There's, there's been a decline, and I think this is looking to potentially sever ties here. What will be really interesting to me is what the trade market is like for Russ, because it's going to be categorically different than what we're going to see for Aaron Rodgers, despite the fact that he's younger. 
I think Russ is the type of quarterback where skepticism, people can buy into that skepticism a lot because he's he's a smaller guy. He doesn't perform in a traditional way. He's not really a guy that you could leap everything onto. There's still an expectation that you're going to have to run the ball and have a good defense around him, despite the fact that that's not really necessarily the case. So how many teams are going to be willing to mortgage their future for, you know, five years of Russell Wilson unless they're sure they have everything right around him at this point. I'm not saying it's, it's the right thing to think, but it's rough. 26 in EPA per play, 18th in grading. And again, after falling apart in the second half of last season, too. I mean, maybe the finger is really bothering him a lot in this game. I thought Russell Wilson did this funny, like, I'm giving an excuse, but I'm not giving excuse things, where he said that the finger wasn't an issue, but, or the finger wasn't an issue, and he's not the type of guy to make excuses. He doesn't do that. Well, when you say I'm not the type of guy to make excuses, you're you're kind of implying that it there is an excuse out there that you're not saying. So then in a way, you're implying an excuse. Like if you're really not going to make an excuse, then just say the finger was not an issue. Cut. Don't go into the part about I'm not the type of guy to make excuses. Right? Um, I don't know. Seattle was supposed to be on an island game. I think it's going to get pulled for Sunday night football. So we're not going to see them going forward. Uh, this is looking like the end here, and it's weird to think that Pete Carroll is probably likely to survive Russ here, and he will get moved. I'm just not sure if there's going to be any buyer for Russ on a expensive but not totally egregious contract that is going to give up enough trade compensation where you're not going to see Seahawks fans up in arms without a backup plan. You know, if they got to turn to Geno, I don't know how the Seahawks fans are not going to riot when they trade Russell Wilson for a single first-round pick or something like that. But we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a bigger market out there. Maybe it'll be a lot more. But that is another offseason thing to keep in mind. And Russ may be playing more for his own trade value, which will help get him out of town than anything else the rest of the season, than, of course, playing for this season, which is basically over and the next couple of years are also going to be rough without that pipeline because of poor drafting and picks you gave up for Jamal Adams. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Leave a review. If you love the pod, uh, go ahead and jump on YouTube. I like to answer uh, comments there. Otherwise, I'm going to be talking to you later this week. I think we're still going to do the Friday pod, even though um, – you know, we have Thanksgiving and all that stuff. I'm not sure how many people are going to be so annoyed by their families that they're going to tune in. I'm not going to talk about the Thursday games. Thursday games will be gone. I'll review some of them. I don't have any plays going into them. God, there's so many ups and downs with all these new quarterbacks in and out there that I'm just going to skip Thursday. But I will have some best bets for Sunday. Hopefully we can get back on track as far as that's concerned. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in.